is good singing. Well, the focus of this week is upon the ministry of God's precious word, and we are delighted again to have the Reverend John Greer with us, and he is preaching on that subject, Revival Highlights in Ezra. Our hearts were blessed last night, and we trust as the Lord's servant now comes to bring the message that the Lord has laid upon his heart tonight, that he will know the blessing and the help of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mr. Kenny. And it is my uh, great joy to be back again uh, on this Monday evening of your week. And I want to thank you for all coming back again uh, to join with us tonight. Uh, maybe some here for the first time, I'm not sure. Well, I know Mr. Johnson and his wife are here. They were busy yesterday, so good to see your brother and his wife. And I value the prayers of the Lord's people uh, for these meetings. We need the help of God. And may he come and visit our hearts even once again. So we're turning to the book of Ezra, obviously, and I want to read some verses in chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2. Ezra, of course, uh, is a book in which there's a lot of detail, and this is one of those chapters. So I won't be reading the whole chapter, uh, but we want to read the first few verses, and then we'll go down to verse number 64 and read from there. So Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. We'll begin reading there. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Belshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, Beana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then we go right down to verse number 64 and take up the congregation there. And here we have the number. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score, beside their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,300 thirty and seven, and there were among them two hundred singing men and singing women. Their horses were seven hundred, thirty and six, their mules two hundred, forty and five, their camels four hundred, thirty and five, their asses six thousand, seven hundred and twenty. And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work threescore and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pounds of silver and one hundred priest garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And we know that God will bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts. And again, could we just have a word of prayer before we come to look at these verses? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee and we bless thee 
for thy hand upon us already as thy servant has prayed in the meeting last night and we bless thee Lord for coming near and giving help and yet Lord we're at a new point we have not been here before we never will be again and we pray that in this moment thou wilt uh, draw near we lift up our hearts to thee to the living God the true God the one who reigns and who rules, the one who is the God of revival. And Lord, we pray that Thou wilt bless us tonight. May we know the touch of heaven on this meeting upon our souls. May we be quickened and renewed, blessed in the inward man. Lord, may we hear Thy voice through the Scriptures. May the Holy Spirit take the Word, the things that we will consider in Thy Word, and bring it all home to our hearts in a manner that will benefit us and be a blessing unto our souls. Cleanse me in Jesus' blood, and fill me, Lord, with thy spirit, and give help now, we earnestly pray, as we wait on at thy feet, and may all the glory be thine. We pray this for Christ's sake, and for God's eternal praise. Amen and amen. Now, the book of Ezra contains the record of two different returns of the people of God from Babylon. The first was under Zerubbabel in the year 538 B.C., and the second was under Ezra himself in the year 458 B.C. Tonight I want to bring your attention to this second chapter where there is the summary of the details in relation to the first return from Babylon in that year that I've mentioned, 538 B.C., we're told in the very first chapter, it was the first year of Cyrus, the king or the emperor of the Medes and the Persians. In verse 64 of this passage, Ezra supplies the number of those who comprised the company who returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, and there were 42,360 in that company. A detail like that the Lord gives a specific number, indicates that he knows the full number of his people. And the Bible says that in Second Timothy, the Lord knoweth them that are his. He counts up the number of the saints. He knows exactly, he knows precisely all those who are truly his. And that's a reference, therefore, to the number of people who came from Babylon to Jerusalem to Judah. It's a reminder to us of all those who will finally arrive in the land of promise and have a place in the Father's house above. And so the register of the various names and the numbers of those who returned from Babylon should be examined for the purpose of gleaning truths which will be profitably applied to our minds, to our hearts, to our lives. This second chapter presents different features that will mark the church of God in days of revival. One of them is what I want to bring to your attention tonight, and that is the order or the arrangement that will characterize, that will mark the people of God when the Lord revives His work. Remember, that's what's going on. God is at work here. We saw this last night in some detail of how everything began and 
There's so much that's fascinating there that we noticed last night. I trust it was fascinating to you because I always find a great blessing as I think of how the Lord worked in those days and brought about a return which really was a revival. And I pointed out to you that everything that happened in the days of these men like Zerubbabel and Joshua and then Ezra and Nehemiah and so on was for the purpose of preparing the way for the first coming of the Messiah. And therefore, God was reviving. God wasn't on the move among his people in order to have everything in place for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that what we are looking at in Ezra or Nehemiah or even Malachi belongs, like all else in Scripture, to the context of redemption. Everything that's in the Bible is focused on the great redemptive purposes of our God. And therefore, what's happening in Ezra is within that framework, and we must always keep that in mind. And since this is a book that has to do with God reviving his work, that means that revival belongs to that same context of redemption. Because revival is God doing in an extraordinary way what he's always doing. He's always saving souls. He's always moving. The Spirit of God is at work continually. As we meet here tonight, we believe we've got the Holy Spirit with us. As others meet somewhere else across the land or in other nations, and leaving aside all time zones, God's at work every day, 24 hours a day, somewhere in this world. He's working. He's moving by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, one of those aspects of the Spirit's work is revival. Revival is happening somewhere in the world tonight because the Spirit of God is always on the move. And He never moves except within that blessed framework of redemption. When revival comes, it is God, as I've said, doing in an extraordinary way, applying redemption on a wide scale to many, many people, just as he is doing every day to the ones and the twos, or whatever the number might be. And so we keep that in mind, and therefore we come to look tonight at this, this theme of the order that marks a revived church, the order that marks God's great work of revival. This is important because the church of Jesus Christ must be marked by order, not by random arrangement. Whenever you read the book of First Corinthians, isn't that what Paul had to deal with in the church at Corinth? He said to the Corinthians, Chapter 14, God is not the, uh, not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And that's a very important statement, because in all the churches where God's truly at work, there will be order, there will be arrangement, there will be matters being done in a manner that glorifies God. Or verse 40 in that same chapter, that was verse 33. But verse 40, a very well-known statement, or really a, an exhortation, let all things be done decently and in order. And so those scriptures stress this matter of the ordering of the life of the church of Jesus Christ 
and they also reveal that it is indispensable for the health and the well-being of the Word of God for that to be the case. And so then I want to look at that line of thought with you as we come to notice some details from this second chapter, and I pray the Lord will help us as we consider two main points, but a number of details under each of these two main points. Number one, the breadth of this ordering of Christ's church. It was broad in scope. When you look at this chapter carefully, you will find that various groups are named, groups that underline truths about the basic spiritual life and the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. All of this order and arrangement that we see the whole way down this chapter was under divine control. It was under God's order of things for this company of people. These are the Lord's people. This is the church of that day and time. They've been brought out of Babylon where they've been in slavery. They're brought home to their own land. They're there to do a work for God and, and so forth. And yet we find that there is an order here. There is an arrangement in all of this that is very, very important to note. It is striking, really, when you think about it carefully. If you go back to the opening verse or two where I read, you'll notice in verse number two the first two names of the chief leaders of the return, Zerubbabel and then Jeshua or Joshua. Zerubbabel was from the tribe of Judah. Joshua was from the tribe of Levi. In them there is a combination of the royal and the priestly lines. And immediately our minds are taken by that, that detail about the royal and the priestly lines. Our minds are taken to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the one who governs his church and moves and works to see his church revived, is the one who reigns as the king priest upon his throne. And nothing happens outside the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that is real, nothing that is advantageous for his church or for the benefit of his church or the well-being of his people is all under, is all under the control of the great king priest. And so it's remarkable that the first two names mentioned, one is from the kingly line, the other is from the priestly line. Think with me, for example, just as I say these things about Christ, he's in view here in that particular way. If you turn, think with me to, uh, turn with me, please, and think with me of Zechariah chapter 6. And look, please, in that chapter at a few verses. Zechariah chapter 6 and the verse number 11. And notice what it says in that verse. It says, Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedak, the high priest. That's the same man whom we read about in Ezra chapter 2. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And I just pause and say to you that that's one of the titles of Christ the name, the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. The only one who is the builder of the church or the temple of God is Christ the branch. 
I wish I had time tonight to go into some detail on that very name, that title, the branch, but we must keep moving. Verse 13, Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And all of that detail is about Jesus Christ. Yes, in those days, the temple of God, literally speaking, physically speaking, was being rebuilt in Jerusalem. But this statement here goes far beyond the physical temple in Jerusalem. It speaks here of someone who is a king priest, and that is Christ alone. And it speaks of him building the temple of the Lord, wearing the crown and so on. And therefore we're being shown that just as the temple in Jerusalem and all that happened in Jerusalem in these days of revival was rebuilt and things were put back in place and it was all led by Zerubbabel from the kingly line and Joshua from the priestly line, so Jesus Christ, the man whose name is the branch, is the one who in every generation builds his church and causes his work to flourish and go forward because he and he alone is the king priest, not in an earthly throne, but in the throne of heaven. And we simply have to think of Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. And again you see the two lines coming together there, the kingly line, the priestly line. Psalm 110, verse 1. What does it say? The great statement the Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Then in verse 4, Jehovah speaks to Christ again and he says, Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that psalm is one of the most often quoted uh, passages from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews. Because remember that Hebrews is the great exposition of the fulfillment and the abolition of the ceremonial law by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true king priest upon his throne who did the work of redemption, who rose from the dead, who ascended back to heaven, who sits on that throne as I speak to you now, and who is praying for us there in the power of an endless life. And therefore, he's the one who orders all things for his church on this earth. And brethren and sisters, we need to follow that order. As I said earlier, for the well-being and the blessing of his people. Now, when you think about these folk in Ezra too, who had come out of Babylon, been there all those years, and they're brought home again. The Lord brought them out of Babylon. And you know what he's doing? He brought them out of Babylon to make something of them. And you know, to me, that is one of the most wonderful thoughts, I believe, about the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. What is salvation? What is God doing when He saves a soul? When He brings us out of the Babylon of this world, when He rescues us from our captivity, our slavery and sin, 
because every human being is a slave to sin and a slave to the world until God comes and saves and rescues. But what is God doing with the likes of us? Or what did he do when he saved us? He saved us to make something out of us for his own glory. That's really what salvation is all about. You remember whenever the Lord dealt with Peter? And remember what he said to Peter, perhaps you remember the words in John chapter 1, when Andrew brought Peter to Christ. The Lord looked at Peter and he said to him, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be Cephas, or Peter, which means a stone. What was Christ saying there? Simon, son of Jonah, he's telling the man we know as Peter, I know everything about you. I know who your father was. I know your background. I know who you are. And Peter was a sinner. Then he said, thou shalt be. And then he gave him a new name, which means stone. And where did he put Peter? He built him into his temple as a living stone in that temple. And what you have encapsulated in John 1.41 is what you have here. He brings these people back from Babylon and he makes something out of them for his own glory. He, he brings them to a place of usefulness and order and arrangement in his great work in those days. There's an emphasis here on the priestliness of God's people. As I said, down through these verses, we can't really stay with this in any great length tonight because there's an awful lot in the chapter, but down through these verses, there are different groups mentioned. And the very first group that's mentioned is comprised of the priests. Verse 36. Notice how that verse begins. The priests. Before that, you've got... Yes, other names and categories, but they're all children, as it says there in the different verses, the children of so-and-so, and the word means sons. But then when you get to verse 36, from that point onwards, for quite a, a bit here, you have this, these different groups that stand out. And so I just draw that to your attention. Verse 36 to 39, you have the priests there. They're the first group mentioned. And there are actually 4,772 priests. If you count them up, you'll find that's the total. That's about the tenth of the whole assembly that's numbered farther on in the chapter. And so the priests come first. They are a large group because they have a great work to do. And so there's an emphasis here on the need for the priestly ministry. And again, our minds go to Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Who should be mentioned first? The one who is the great high priest of our salvation. That's why the priests are mentioned first. They come from the tribe of Levi. I understand that. The Lord came from the tribe of Judah. And there's another study in that altogether uh, with regard to his identity. But just putting it this way, the people of God also are priests unto God. And therefore, we find that the order begins right there with regard to the priestly ministry of the people of God. You see, the Bible teaches, both in the Old and New Testament, that God takes sinners and He does that with them. He makes them 
a holy nation, a spiritual priesthood. He brings them to a point where they are given the great privilege of serving Him and ministering to Him. That is, that is what worship is all about. That is what ministry is all about. Whether at a personal level or a collective level as a congregation, we are a company of priests unto God. And that's part of this order that I'm talking about here. And when revival comes, it's God accumulating to Himself sinners whom He saves, setting them aside, making them that holy priesthood, making them that holy nation, that royal priesthood, to serve Him in this world according to His will and His mind and His ways. And what is their offering? They offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Let me turn you to 1 Peter chapter 2. And many of you will know these verses, but just to remind you of them, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5, it says this, She also as lively or living stones. Remember what I said about Peter. His name means a stone. He wrote the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter because he couldn't forget the new name that the Lord gave him and the new position the Lord gave him when he saved him that day. And he said, Thou shalt be Cephas, or Peter, a stone. And now he writes about it, and he tells God's people, all of God's people are living stones. That's what the word lively really means. But it says this, you're built up a spiritual house. There's the temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 9, and it says there, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, and so forth, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brethren and sisters, what I want you to get from this is I talk about the, the emphasis here on the priesthood in, 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 in Ezra 2 and applying it to ourselves. What I want you to get a hold of tonight is what God has done with you. He has taken you out of your sin. He has taken you out of your fallen state. He has united you with Jesus Christ. He has given you a new standing. You're accepted in the beloved. You're justified freely by God's grace. You've got the Holy Spirit living in your heart. You are being sanctified by the power of the blood through the application of that blood to your life by the Spirit of God all for the purpose of being a priest unto God. What are those spiritual sacrifices? Praise. Say more about that in a moment or two. Get time here. Praise. Prayer. Your tithes, your offerings. The preaching of the words of spiritual sacrifice. There are many of them enumerated and individualize as we go through the Scriptures. Read Hebrews 13. We'll not turn to it now for time's sake, but in that chapter 15 and 16, those two wonderful verses where Paul exhorts the church to offer the sacrifice of praise. And you go through your New Testament and discover for yourself that God has made you a priest. 
And your life, therefore, is to be marked by order and arrangement as you serve the Lord. Not in some legalistic way, not in some fashion where you live your life in bondage, but in the joyful freedom of being set free from your sin to serve the Lord Jesus. That's what we are as priests unto God. There's another emphasis here, and that is, going back to Ezra 2, not only on the priesthood, but on the priority of God's people. I'll just say it in a sentence. The priority that's in view here is dedicated service to the Lord. There are three groups mentioned after the priests. In verse 40, verse 43, and verse 40, uh, verse uh, 55. I can't be right. Anyway, verse 40, it says there, the Levites. Exactly, verse 41. Verse 40 and then verse 41. The Levites, they're mentioned. And they typify, of course, us again, the Lord's people. It says of the the Levites over in Numbers chapter 3, it makes a wonderful statement there. Numbers 3 verse 9, And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron, they are wholly given unto him. The Levites were from the same tribe, the tribe of Levi, obviously. But they were given to Aaron the high priest to work along with him, to assist him, to serve in the temple of God. The Levites, again, represent believers like you and me, redeemed, bought with a price, given into the hands of the great high priest to serve him. You've got the Levites here in Ezra 2. You've got in verse number 43, these who are called the Nephanim. And there's some mystery as to their identity. And there's a lot of discussion on their identity, but the name Nephanim means dedicated. Dedicated. Just note that. That's the meaning of that word, Nephanim. And then you've got Solomon's servants mentioned in this passage. All these different groups. And when you bring them all together, you find that the whole concept is that of dedicated service. In other words, a people not only are priests unto God, but who are given the privilege of serving the Lord every day of their lives. And that also is brought about in a special way when God moves in revival. He takes people out of sin who were previously the servants of the world, who were previously serving the devil, serving sin, serving uncleanness, living only for the things of the flesh, and he makes them his servants to do his will, to fulfill his will, to do that which is glorifying to his great name. So there's an emphasis here on the priority of God's people. And brethren and sisters, that is the priority that we need to keep in mind, that the Lord sets us apart to be his servants to be useful in his cause and for his glory. And how we long and pray that God will send a breath from heaven, that he will multiply the number of his servants in that way, because the world at large needs an army of men and women saved by grace, who are only priests unto God to serve him in that sense, but who are also servants 
for his work and for his cause and his kingdom, ministers and missionaries and Sunday school teachers and elders and deacons. Just think about it. The generations are slipping by, aren't they? And many of the faithful servants of God have been taken home. And we just heard in the past week about Dr. Woods. And we think of that man, what he did for God in his lifetime in a wonderful way, and many, many more like him. We need the Lord to furnish his church with a fresh influx of new servants to do the work of God, to fill the gaps, to fill the offices, to furnish every department of the work of God for labor and for spiritual industry. How vital that is. And I trust that you will pray for reviving. You take our own little denomination. How quickly the years have slipped away. There's not a congregation in our denomination that doesn't need a fresh infusion of men and women saved by grace to fill the gaps, to provide for the future, to be the ministers and the missionaries and the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers. And I could keep on going because soon the place that knows us today will know us no more and our voices will be silent and our seats will be empty. And God always sends revival. That's one other reason, to furnish His church with new laborers, new servants. That's how He keeps His church alive and moving forward. There's an emphasis on that in this chapter, all these servants who we've looked at here very quickly. There's an emphasis in, on the praise of God's people in this chapter. Verse 41 refers to the singers. It says there, the singers, the children of Asaph. Now, Asaph was one of the leaders of God's praise in former times. The days of David, the days of Solomon. And the point is made there that there's a necessity for the, let's put it this way, the spirit of praise among those who will do a work for God. You know, if you take these very people, think of what was said about them and even to them when they were in Babylon. They couldn't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Do you remember Psalm 137? It'll be worth your while just to turn to it quickly and look at it. Psalm 137 and the verse number 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And here was the response of the captives, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The captives were joyless. The captives had no song. You can apply that in so many ways. Backsliders have lost the song. Is that the way it is with you? Are you going on with God? 
Or are you backslidden and cold and careless? And even the world would mock you. Sing as one of the songs of Zion and you can't anymore. Or maybe you're not saved. I don't know. You can't sing the Lord's song while you're a captive to the devil and to the world to sin. Then you take the whole church of God. Are there not times of deadness, spiritual captivity that we all go through and we feel it and we are were enslaved in some various ways and we can't really enter into the praise of God as we should? You see, in the darkest days, the Lord's people can at least sing of their freedom in Christ of what he has done for their souls. There may not be much outwardly that we can sing about, certainly not as far as the nation's concerned. All we see out there is what makes us grieve, what vexes us. All that we can see is men of the world striving for power and prestige and wealth and doing so at the abandonment of everything that's right and all that's biblical, and the law of God trampled beneath their feet. There's nothing to sing about as far as the world is concerned, and men of the world are concerned. But we can sing about our Savior, even in the worst of times. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17, and the story of Habakkuk is one that's very, very striking and interesting If you know the story, Habakkuk looked at the sin of his own nation and he wondered why God was doing nothing about it. And then God showed him that he's going to bring the Babylonians to chastise Judah. See, Habakkuk lived before the captivity and he saw it all coming, therefore. And so God showed him, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans and they'll overrun your land. And that that made Habakkuk really depressed. And he had to get alone with God and try to figure this all out. And you get to chapter 3. I can't take time to look at Habakkuk any more than that, but in chapter 3, he has gotten the victory. And you get to verse 17, and he describes a most dismal scene. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Now that's a dismal scene. That's economic collapse in verse 17. Yeah, look at 18. And notice what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What do you say there? Here's the one thing that never changes for the child of God. And we have no idea, men and women, what's coming down the road. I mean, in any detail. Uh, We certainly know that we are in difficult, dark days as it is. But if economic collapse took place, I mean completely, how would we deal with it? As Habakkuk does. Because here's something that will never collapse. What God has done in our salvation, that never changes. 
that remains the same. And in that we can always sing, we can always rejoice. God work, God's work moves forward, you see, on the basis of praise and gladness. Just in Ezra there, quickly look into chapter 3 at verses 10 and 11. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together. Now, tomorrow night, by the help of the Lord, I'll be coming to these verses in chapter 3 in some detail. But just notice this. They sang together by course. And you know what that means by course? It means in parts. In parts. So there were people that day who could sing tenor and some could sing alto and some could sing soprano or whatever. That's what the words mean. There's nothing wrong with singing in parts. If you've got a good voice and you can learn, well, I can't, but if you could learn to sing some part, do it. It enhances the praise of our God. And it goes on to say in verse 11, they sang together and so forth, because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Brethren and sisters, there's an emphasis not only on the priesthood and on the, the whole matter here that we've looked at already, the priority of God's people to serve the Lord, but there's an emphasis on praise. But there's one other emphasis I want you to see. Verse 42 the porters are mentioned. And the word simply means gatekeeper. There's an emphasis there on the position of God's people. God's people are gatekeepers. Another important group here in this story or this account, they were needed to, to keep the doors of God's house. You know, this is a tremendous statement because there wasn't any temple built at this point. The temple was lying in ruins. Did you notice when we read this chapter, or part of this chapter tonight, toward the end of it, verse 68 says this, Some of the chief of the fathers, when they came up to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place, and, and on it goes there. But at that stage there was no house. But in faith they can see the house of God, as it were. Some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, offered freely for the house of God. In their mind's eyes, they could see the house of God arising out of the ashes. It wasn't there. Only when you get into chapter 3 do you see the foundation being laid. And it's not until farther on in the book that the house is actually finished. There's nothing there but desolation. But you see, they can see it because God has brought them home to build that temple. And therefore, that temple will need porters for its doors. And the porters are all arranged. As it says there in verse 42 again, the children of the porters. And so, the ordering of God's people has to do with this as well. Yes, priestly work and serving the Lord, that priority and praising God, and then also this matter of keeping the gates of God's work. The whole thought there is of defense, of making sure that the house of God is not intruded 
by those who have no right to be there. You see, that was all laid down in the Levitical law. There were different individuals or people who were not allowed into God's house, and there were porters there to safeguard all of those things. The porter could not afford to be slack or to be careless. Remember what the psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. We think what the Lord shows us in John 10 about the Pharisees. John 10 verse 1, he said this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door, to him the porter openeth. Do you know who the great porter is there in John 10? The Holy Spirit. Verse 1 about those who climb up some other way, that's the Pharisees. God never called them. They were intruders into the congregation of the Lord, the flock of God. Christ is addressing the Pharisees directly. And the background there is what the Pharisees had done to the man who was born blind in John 9. God's, the Lord Jesus healed him, but he also saved him. And then that man stood up for Christ. And we're told in John 9, 34, that the Pharisees excommunicated him because he defended the Lord. And so in John 10, Christ is responding to the unlawful action of the Pharisees in excommunicating the blind man or the man who was blind but now could see. And he tells the Pharisees to their faces, you are thieves and robbers. You climbed up another way. God never called you. You are not legitimately in the place where you can serve God, but the one who's called by God, to him the porter opens the door. The Holy Spirit recognizes those who are truly the Lord's and those who serve our God. I have to say to you, that's just my first point. Please don't be alarmed. I'm going to cut the second point down. Because when you come to look at this second chapter of Ezra again, we not only see the, the, the matter of the ordering, the breadth of it, all that took place. That's what I, how I, I phrased it, the breadth of this ordering of Christ church, so many different groups, so many different roles. It's all here. shows you how in God's work there's a need for many, many laborers. But then the benefit of this ordering of Christ's church. Because that's the whole point. We want to run our churches according to God's order with everybody in the right place doing what the Lord wants them to do so that the whole company will benefit. My friend, you take that to heart. You may be a Sunday school teacher, a children's worker, whatever your role is in the work of God, you make sure that you've got the right heart and the right spirit and the right attitude so that you will benefit the work of God. 
in chapter 2, there are a couple of groups there, and they, they, they represent some people who are found in, 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 within the visible church. Look at verses 59 and 60. It says, And these were they which went up from Telmela, Telharsa, Kerub, Adon, and Emer. That's Ezra 2, verse 59. Now, those places I've just read there, Telmela and so on, those places are actually all places around the city of Babylon. That's what, what that means, that kind of language. And so they went up from, as it were, the outskirts of Babylon, out of the city itself, and then these outlying places all named here. That's just to explain that to you. But notice the end of verse 59. But they could not show their father's house and their seed, whether they were of Israel. The word show in that statement means to put or place before. What it's saying is, here's a group of people, there are actually 652 of them, as you see in verse number 60. 652 of them, quite a large group. And here's what's said about them. They could not actually present the proof that they were of Israel. Who are these people? They are representative of many who mingle among us who are uncertain, unsure about their standing, their position, whether they really belong to God's Israel or not. That's one way you could take those words. People who are unable to give a clear answer on spiritual things. You know, the world is full of people like that, or even our own little land. There are people in Northern Ireland, and I'm sure in Hillsborough in particular, and if you went to their doors tonight and started to talk to them about the things of God, you might find that they know a wee bit, or they know a little. But they're very uncertain, they're very unsure. And then there are others who maybe are in this congregation. I don't even mean tonight, but a part of your congregation as a whole. And they don't really know where they stand. They could not set it out and say, I really belong to the company of God's people. I'm sure of it. I'm certain of it. They're marked by uncertainty. And when you think about it, it says there, they could not show their father's house and their seed. What has that got to do with birth? Isn't that right? Their father's house, their seed, their father's seed. It has to do with, they can't actually display the proof, I'm from that tribe or this family or whatever. They can't produce the proof that they were born into that tribe or that family or whatever. Now, you can see the application of that. I trust. People are unsure whether they're born again or not. But if you take that relationship that's in view there, they couldn't show their father's house. Not only one of birth, it's one of blood. Because if you're in a certain family, the bloodline runs in that family. And we use that expression all the while. My own flesh and blood, you might say, or so-and-so has got his or her father's blood in their veins. We use that kind of language. But to, to take it a step farther, a true relationship with the Lord, knowing that you're really His, brings in these two factors of birth and blood. 
because those who are of the Lord are born of God. And those who are the Lord's are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so these people, you see, are uncertain that they really belong to the Lord. They, don't, they can't say it in so many words. But you know, notice a few wee encouragements about them. It says in verse 59 again, These are they which went up. And I told you those places all surrounded Babylon. They were in that vicinity. So they had a desire to leave Babylon, even though they couldn't show their pedigree. At least they had left Babylon behind them. That's encouraging. There's the mark of the child of God. You see, this is how you counsel people. Are you willing to leave the world? Are you willing to leave the Babylon of this old day in which we live? Or have you left it? Oh, see that. You might be talking to a, a soul that's unsure or uncertain about their standing with God, but at least you can say to them, look, you came out of the world. You left sin behind you. That's the mark of grace. That's the mark of a child of God. They also had a desire to go to Jerusalem because they left Babylon and went to Jerusalem. And that reminds us, you see, of someone also to whom we can say, well, you left the world, you left this old Babylon, and you long to be in Jerusalem, or you're traveling to Jerusalem. That's where you want to be, the city of God, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And at least these people wanted to do that. They left Babylon. They've come up to Jerusalem. There's much in their favor. And they also are mingled in with the whole company, the whole congregation. They want to be with the Lord's people. All these are little marks that indicate that they had many things going in their favor. You see, my dear friend, that's how we help those who are uncertain by counseling them along these lines, by helping them, by showing to them that if they've got desires in their hearts to leave the world and get to the heavenly Jerusalem, if they can say the people of God are my people, I want to be with them and be among them and worship with them and praise God with them. Ah, oh, my friend, that's not of the world. That's not of the flesh. That's not of the devil. That can only be of God. And so, this is what I mean by the benefit of this ordering. These people are in among the congregation. They need help. And when revival comes, that's what happens. People who are uncertain are suddenly made sure People who were doubtful are suddenly brought to a place of assurance, the uncertain. And God shows us tonight when revival breaks out, all kinds of benefits fall upon those who come under the power of, of revival. And God awakens, and God begins to move in their lives and bless them, and lead them on, and bring them to a place of assurance, and privilege, and benefit in their own souls, in their own hearts, their own lives. May I ask you tonight, how is it with you? Have you uncertainty in your soul about your spiritual state?
Or do you have at least this to say, I once was a stranger to grace and to God, as the hymn says, but now I want to be with God's people. I want to be in heaven. I don't want to stay with the world. I want to get away from it. My dear friend, don't stop until you know of assurance that you belong to the Lord. If you go down there to verse 61, sorry, verse number 62, it says these, these, this is another group. I finish with this. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. You know, there's a parallel to that in the New Testament. Here is a group, and there was a seeking in the register among those who were accounted there, but these ones could not be found in the register of God. And they were put out. They were not allowed into all that was going on here. What is the parallel in the New Testament? Matthew 22. The man without a wedding garment who was found in the wedding feast, but he was put out because he didn't have the wedding garment. Put out into outer darkness picture of someone who mingles with God's people, who even makes many claims of Christianity, but doesn't have the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? It's the perfect righteousness of Christ by which we're justified. And when that perfect righteousness of Christ is possessed by any soul, there will be the evidence that that is the case in the sanctified life, the godly life. But those who do not have the wedding garment neither have justifying righteousness nor imparted righteousness in their lives, and eventually they will be cast out. Whenever revival comes, God deals with all these things. God works in various ways and there is a cleansing and a purging and there is a removal of the, the chaff from among the wheat even when revival comes. My dear friend, think of where you are with God tonight. Make sure that all is well with your soul. Make sure you have the wedding garment. Make sure that you're right in his sight. May the Lord write his word in our hearts and bless it to us. And may he be pleased to use it for his glory. We'll bow together as we come to a close. And may the Holy Spirit continue to work and bless these meetings. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we come before thee and we thank thee for this time around thy word. And we bless thee for what we have noted but thou hast enabled us to see. O oh Lord, we do pray that thy Spirit will write these matters upon our minds and that thou wilt be with us in our 
in our study of this little book and these meetings and all that will be brought out by thy help and power, O Lord, come and, and move upon our souls and give to us, O Lord, understanding and may the Holy Ghost supply the word powerfully and, and beneficially to every individual. O Lord, we long for those days when God will be on the move and things will be happening that need to happen. The Spirit of God will come in great power and with great blessing. Be with us now. Give traveling mercies homeward. Gather us again tomorrow evening. Meet with us, we pray. We ask all of these petitions in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen.